Ferris B'nai Torah presents the Shmooze, an engaging and motivating Musar and Hashkafa series that deals with real-life issues. Gemara Shabbos asks the question, my Hanukkah, Rosh explains the question being, for what nace did Chazal specifically set up this, <coughs> these days of Hanukkah? And the Gemara answers, the Gemara explains to us that when the Yuvanim came into the Heichel, they were metama all of the oils. Then when the Malchus based Hashmanoi, when the Hashmanoi dynasty were victorious, the Jews who entered the Beis Migdash searched, and they found just one jug of oil that was sealed with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. There was only sufficient oil to last one day. A nace happened, and they lived from it eight days. Then the Gemara explains to us, Lashana Cheres, in some future point, after that year, Kavum Vaasun Chazal set them and made them into Yomim Tovim Bahal of with Halal and Hodah. So the Gemara is telling us that because of the miracle that had occurred, Chazal set up this, these days of Hanukkah to be specifically for praise and thanksgiving. Now many of the Achronim are bothered by the fact that this holiday is unique from all of the holidays in the rest of the season because there is no typical simcha on Hanukkah. Certainly the concept of having a su'uda is at best a rishus. There's no obligation. It's very different than Purim, but it's really different than any other Yom Tov that either Chazal or the Torah set up in a sense that it's strictly a spiritual halalodah. And the Bach, in explaining why it is that Chazal felt there should not be any necessity for a meal, for the physical simcha, the Bach explains because the decree of the Yavonim was because the Kohanim were lax, were somewhat lacking in enthusiasm in their avoda. So because the Kohanim were lacking in that zeal, in that energy, when they were doing the avoda in the base of Migdash, Therefore, Hashem decreed that the avoda should be bottle, as the Bryce tells us, and that's what happened. Then the Bach explains that when the Klaisrol did tshuva, what was the tshuva? The tshuva was that the Klaisrol were ready to give their lives for bringing back the base of Migdash, remaining staunch Torah loyalists. Therefore, Hashem saved them via the Kohanim. The Kohanim, again, are the people who do the avoda. Therefore, it's appropriate that the Konim should lead the revolt. The Hashmanoim were Konim, led by a Kohen Gadol. Therefore, the Nase was done with Neros, with the Menorah. Again, a spiritual point. And says the Bach, Therefore, Chazal only set them with Halal Hadah, because that is Avoda Belev, that is spiritual. So the Bach explains very simply as follows. The entire decree was because of a spiritual lack in the Jewish people. What was the reason, what was the underlying cause of the destruction of the Beis Amikdash, or the seizing of it? It was because the Kohanim became lazy in the Avodah. The salvation was the Klaistral being Moshe Nefesh. Therefore, since both the decree and the salvation had nothing to do with physical issues, had strictly to do with enthusiasm about the Avoda, and then the mysterious Nefesh for it. Therefore, it's only appropriate that the remembrance, the commemoration, should be with something spiritual. Therefore, it's with praise and with thanksgiving. And that's the Bach. 
The only question that really begs being asked on this Bach is when you study just a few basic points about the time period and what happened, you see that it's very difficult to understand the Bach. Now let's start with one simple question, and that is, let's admit for a minute the following. Let's say the Kohanim was somewhat lax in their Zrizus, they didn't have the necessary alacrity, they didn't have the zeal, it became a bit pedestrian. Okay, fine. Is that a reason to stop the Avodah in the base of Mikdash? There are many solutions to the problem, but it doesn't sound like the appropriate solution is to, okay, that's it, stop the Avodah. You don't have enough energy, you don't have enough enthusiasm, there's no more, no more service in the base of Mikdash. That's number one. But number two is the fact that a decree that was made against the Avodah was not what the Yavonim were about. When Antiochus entered Yerushalayim, the first thing he did was kill 40,000 Jews, then take 40,000 as slaves. Granted, he did many abominable things in the base of Mikdash. He brought in a chazir, he brought in a pig, shechted it, he mocked the Avodah, but his decrees just began at that point. What he was, his objective was the destruction of the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, and every decree that he made was specifically focused on getting the Jews to stop acting Jewish. After a while, his decrees began extending to Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, and Mila. We're all familiar with that. But it wasn't very long before any practice of Judaism was punishable by death. And as the as explained, we touched on this in a previous shmuz, when in a very short time in the city of Yerushalayim you could not find a practicing Jew. The law was you had to speak like a Greek, you had to act like a Greek, you had to wear the Greek clothing, the Greek hat. If you were caught acting like a Jew, if you answered in a Hebrew language, if you gave your name as a Jewish name, you were slaughtered on the spot. If you wished to keep Torah, the only way you could do it was by fleeing to the cities, fleeing away from Yerushalayim, fleeing to distant areas. The decrees were not just not against the base of Migdash, they were so effective that it's ironic that one at a certain point, and this is long after the success, Yehuda Maccabee sends the word back to the other soldiers after they had won, we have Sifrei Torah. If you want to copy them, send Sofrim down to us because we have Sifrei Torah. Meaning for years during the war, what the Yavonim would do was they would go into a city and make it completely free of anything Jewish. They destroyed every shul, they burnt every Sefer Torah. There was no such thing as practicing Judaism. And when you understand what was actually happening, was this was not a battle for the Avod in the Beis Amigdash, this was a battle for whether the Jewish nation should exist or not, and whether there would ever be any Jews left. And the Ramban is very clear and very specific when he says that it not been for the Hashmanoim, Torah, Nishtachach Yisrael, Torah would have been forgotten from the Kalei Yisrael. So, with that as a backdrop, the question on the Bach, I think, is rather obvious. Let's grant for a moment that there was a certain lack in alacrity in Zrizus that the Konim exhibited. Is that a reason to A, stop the Avoda, but B, to destroy the Jewish people? And arguably not just the Jewish people, because it's a rather basic premise that if Torah ceases from 
being learnt, the world itself ceases to exist. So the question really becomes much more grave when we recognize that the issue is the existence of humanity. And the question is that it doesn't sound appropriate to destroy the Jewish people, to destroy the world, because the Kohanim are lacking a bit in their vodah. One more step, and that is that the historical background of the time also begs another question. And that is that there were much bigger fish to fry than the Kohanim not having the right kavanah. There were many, many Jews who were more Greek than the Greeks. There were many, many Nisyavnim, what are known as Hellenists. There were so many practicing Hellenists within the ranks of the Jewish people that it was very difficult to trust anyone. And as a matter of fact, during one of the battles, a number of years deep into the rebellion, when Antiochus sent over 40,000 cavalry, when they took the battlefield against Yehuda Maccabee, they were no longer 40,000, but their ranks had swollen to 60,000. The additional 20,000 soldiers were Jews who were fighting against the Torah loyalists who had joined the Yavanim ranks because they wanted to eradicate Torah. There were many, many Jews who were not just anti-Torah. They were so into the Greek culture that they asked that Yushalayim be named Antioch, be named in the honorary city in the name of Antiochus. They stood in the vanguard of introducing Greek culture. But more than anything, their objective was to eradicate Torah. And when you recognize that there were many, many Nisyavnim, many, many Hellenists amongst us, and you recognize the fact that the practicing Kohen Gadol was not a Kohen, was from Shevet Binyamin, because many years earlier the Kohuna Gadola was stolen. The man who called himself the Kohen Gadol, who wore the Begadim at the time that Antiochus entered the base of Migdash, was not a Kohen. And the reason why he was not a Kohen is because it was a bought position from the Greek Empire, he bought that position and the Mizyavnim were in charge to the extent that one could not trust a Kohen to actually be a Kohen and one could not trust him to do the Avodah. So if that's the reality of the times, it doesn't sound like the problem is that the Kohanim are not quite doing the Avodah with enough zeal. There's a much bigger issue that a major segment of the Jewish people are not practicing Judaism. And again, the Bach becomes very difficult to understand because the Bach attributes the entire decree, the reason why the Beis Amikdash was ransacked, the reason why the Jews were slated to be killed, was because the Kohanim were Israshlu, they became lax, they became lackadaisical in their voda, and that doesn't quite seem to fit the description of what was happening. So I'd like to see if we could get a better understanding of what the Bach actually means. And to do that, I'd like to take a little bit of a journey to a different part of history. There's a Pesach in the Chumash that says, Mikol shiva shiva. Hashem tells Noah, from every behema Tahorah, you are to take seven of them, ish ishto, a man and his wife. Rashi makes the observation, and it's really a court of the Gemara, that there is no man and wife in the animal kingdom. There is no matrimony. There is no human form. And the concept of ish ve'ishto, even if it means in a very broad sense, there is no marriage, there is no bonding within the animal kingdom. 
granted there are some animals that will mate once and remain bonded for life, but within the majority, the vast majority of the animal kingdom, there is very little allegiance, very little bonding, and therefore the concept of Ish Ishto doesn't make sense. Rashi, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, explains what this means is, <coughs> the only animals that the Teva would allow in were the animals that did not go outside of their species. If a horse remained only within the horse species, then it was allowed into the Teva. If a cow only mated within the species of the bovine grouping, it was allowed into the Teva, but the Teva kept out the rest, which is apparent from this Gemara and this Rashi, that most of the animals, when there's Dagvu Le'inomino, most of the animals mated with other species. And when you see this, you have to ask yourself the question, what does it mean? You can look through the 1.5 million species alive on the planet today, and you will be very hard-pressed to find one single species that on its own volition will mate with an animal outside its species. Dogs will mate with dogs, cats with cats, cougars with cougars, but they will not mate with other animals. Not naturally, not in the wild, not without very great attempts to make them change their natural behavior. And the question is, why if that's the reality, and if that's the nature of the animal, why is it that in the time of Noah, apparently the standard was quite the opposite? Now, quizzically, the Pasuk says an expression, but the Shechais Aritz Nefelokim, the land became destroyed in front of Hashem. And Chazal explained to us that because Adam corrupted his nature, therefore animals corrupted their nature. Because man left his wife, because man would leave the natural bond of marriage, therefore the animals did the same. And while that begins to open the door, the question is not answered. And the question is, let's even grant it's true that many men in the time of Noah were immoral, would leave their wives and go with various other women. That does not explain change in nature that's so difficult to understand, that swans would be mating with either birds well outside their range, animals would be mating with other animals. How do you change the very nature, the Nefesh of Bahami? And because this issue, I believe, is fundamental to understanding some of the concepts of the way Hashem created the world, I'd like to do one more step. Now, one more step is to analyze a fascinating Chazal. The Chazal tell us, we're familiar with the Chazal, but analyzing and understanding it is the key. The Chazal tell us that there's a stirim tzukim. The Pesach says that, Vayikach me'avni amakum, Yaakov Vinu took from the rocks of that place. When Yaakov left his father's house and he was running away from Esau, he took many rocks and he gathered them around his head as a marzave. He put some as a border, some as a roof. He took 12 stones according to the Medrash. Then the Pesach says, Vayikach as Evan, when he awoke in the morning, he took the single Evan, Chazal asked a stira. And Chazal answered the question by saying that that night there was a fight. Each rock was saying, Alayanech tzadik is rosho, on me the tzadik should rest his head. 
Therefore, Hashem made it that they should all meld into one rock. Basically, the 12 rocks are fighting. I don't want to be on top of him. I want to be under him. Therefore, Hashem makes him one. Now, the question on this Fazal is that if you go to Rockland County and interview every rock in the county, I guarantee not a one of them will say, I wish for you to lie your head on me. You will not find rocks talking. You will not find rocks expressing things. Yet, apparently, this medrash is taken literally. And if you look in the Mepharshim, there are some Midrashim that are taken allegorically. This one is taken literally. And the question is, what's Pshat? Now, if you've been to a few the early Shmuzim, you'll probably be familiar with the first step of this answer. And that step is that every physical component in this world has a spiritual counterpart. There's no physicality in existence that doesn't have a spiritual counterpart keeping it in existence. If you remember from Shmuz 71, we spent a lot of time on the sun and the moon, that there is a spiritual counterpart to the sun, a spiritual counterpart to the moon. Not only is there a spiritual counterpart, the physical aspect could not exist without the spiritual counterpart keeping in existence. That's what we describe in Shabbos Davening, that the Sva Marum, the hosts, praise Hashem, and you'll hear expressions in Chazal like the sun and the moon, praise Hashem, what that's referring to is a spiritual component, something like a malach, something like an angel, but a little bit lower level, that is the spiritual counterpart to the physical. Okay. Now, with that being said, here's a very interesting observation. There is a city in the Ukraine that currently has a population of zero. None. Not a person lives in the city. Interesting enough, once upon a time, it was very populated. In fact, there are still factories, there are hospitals, there are schools, but absolutely, totally desolate, deserted today. On April 26, 1986, the world's worst nuclear disaster occurred at Chernobyl Nuclear Power Plant, and enough radiation was emitted during the two weeks of the meltdown that it out-surpassed the radiation emitted by the, by the largest bomb ever detonated to the tune of 100 times. Within just a short while, the estimates were that 125,000 people died of the radiation exposure. And today, there's a 19-mile radius around Chernobyl that is considered uninhabitable. Now, if you go there, and I've seen pictures of the site, it looks absolutely, totally normal. You'll see the buildings, they're still standing. you see the streets, they're still standing. There are trees, there's grass. A bit unusual because there aren't people there, but everything there looks totally as if it's a regular day in the spring or the fall, and you have to wonder, why is it that no one lives there? But the answer to that question is that modern science understands that there are features in this world that you can't necessarily see, you can't feel, but they're very potent, they're very real. And if you take a Geiger count on the streets of Chernobyl, you get a very high reading. By the way, if you'd like a job, you can earn five times the national average earnings in Ukraine if you accept the following job. It is working for two minutes a day. That's it. Two minutes a day. 
and you'll earn five times the amount of the average earnings in Ukraine. What is that job? There are a few workers who are still working in the power plant to seal it off. But they're only allowed to have exposure for two minutes, no longer. Because that radiation is so potent, despite the fact that they're wearing protective suits, gloves, masks, gas masks, they're totally sheltered. Anything more than two-minute exposure is considered very, very dangerous. And the truth be told, the reason why they're paid five times the national average is because it is a highly risky job to be exposed for two minutes a day. And when you study such features, you become aware of the fact that there are forces in the world that don't appear to be, don't seem to be, but are very, very powerful. Typically, there are many things that appear inert. A rock is inert. An inert object basically is. A radioactive object gives off power, gives off energy, and if you're attuned to it, you see it as a very, very different sort of object than an inert object. I believe the answer, Yaakov, really is quite simple. When Hashem created the world, Hashem created the world for a very specific purpose. Hashem created the world to serve man. When Hashem created man, it was for man to grow, to accomplish. Hashem put us on this planet for the one specific purpose of serving Hashem, becoming close to Hashem so we could perfect ourselves. And Hashem created the entire world to serve man. If you'd like to wonder why it is that vegetarianism is not approved of by the Torah, it's not because you have an obligation to eat meat, not because eating meat is such a great thing to do, but because typically if a person says, I'm a vegetarian because I don't feel it's right for a two-legged animal to eat a four-legged animal, what he's really saying is he fundamentally doesn't understand why Hashem created the world, nor does he understand man's place in the world. If you understand that everything in creation was put there for man's use, was created specifically to be used by man, and the Torah permits man to eat animals, then you understand morality from a very real perspective. And according to that perspective, it is appropriate and proper to eat an animal. Done properly, it's actually the purpose in that animal's creation. And if not used for that purpose because you believe that it's a higher morality, that's actually cruel. When the tzaddikim would put their head down on a rock, the rocks would fight. Why? Because the spiritual component of that rock understood very clearly that rock was created for one specific purpose, and that purpose was to serve man. Because that spiritual part of the rock said, I want the tzaddik's head on me, because that's the reason why I'm in existence. Not only is that the reason, that's what keeps me in existence, and the Sulasharm is very, very clear. He says the human was created in perfect balance. The human is in perfect balance. If he uses the world appropriately, he grows. He becomes a perfect person. If he misuses the world, he's Mekalkel. But it's not just he. If the human becomes corrupted, then he corrupts the world that he uses. If the human becomes perfect, then he perfects the world that he uses. Because the world was created for man's use. If you're the Odomat Tzaddik, if your name is Yaakov Avino and you've perfected yourself, every part of creation that you use gets an elevation, 
and gets more perfect, fulfills its purpose in creation, and gets elevated. If you're in Adam Russia, every chair you sit on, every tree you lean against, gets corrupted and gets ruined. When you see Noah's door, what you're seeing is a generation that became very, very immoral. They corrupted the very nature of humanity, and they injected so much tumma in the world that the balance in the world was changed. No longer was the balance as it had been created for. No longer was the balance normal. When the entire generation turned to Znus, what they did was they changed the balance in the world. And now, because of that, the world itself was serving and servicing man who was wicked, and therefore the world itself became corrupted. And the normal ways of nature, the normal way of one animal to remain within a species, was now corrupted, and therefore they were also out of their bounds. As man corrupted his inner nature, affected the spiritual level, so too the animals then became corrupted, left their boundaries, and they began on a regular basis being misdaveg, mating with animals outside of the species. And the huge, huge Hiddish is how much the entire creation is dependent upon man. How much the existence of creation is dependent upon man and how the very features that are shempered in the world to allow the world to remain and exist are corrupted. Man misuses them and quite the opposite become much stronger and become much more glorified and perfected if they're used appropriately. One more step, and I think we can answer the Bach. And that step is, my body is basically inert. The human body will change very little within my lifetime, and even after a person dies, there's very little change that occurs. We think of our neshama, we think of the eye that occupies the body, much like the body. Basically, it's an inert object. It doesn't change much. Just like I can lose some weight, change my physical appearance a little bit, maybe put on some muscle, change my physical appearance a little bit, our sense naturally is that our neshama is the same. What's the difference between a person who's growing and a person who's not? A little bit of difference, you know? The person who's learning, who's dominating, who's growing, he's a little bit better, a little bit sharper. Maybe his neshama glows a bit more. I think the reality is very, very different than that. And the way to begin understanding this is to understand that the neshama is an extraordinarily reactive element. If in the beginning of the day, your neshama is on point A, and you don't move it forward, by the end of the day, it will be on a lower level. Not only will it be on a lower level, the neshama will never remain stagnant. It's an ever-changing, ever-moving item. The neshama is always going up or always going down. It's extraordinarily reactive. When you see radioactive material, and if you could watch it from a different perspective, you'd see it constantly giving off energy, constantly changing, constantly emitting the neshama is far more reactive, and the neshama changes like that. But not only does the neshama change very easily, either it's going up or it's going down. On a constant basis, it's changing moment by moment, thought by thought, action by action, either going up or going down. And if you ever have the sense that I'm about the same today as I was two weeks ago, that's patently false. It can't be. 
Because if you've just stayed stagnant, just know and understand it's a guarantee that you're going down because the neshama is ever-changing by the moment, either heading up or heading down. And I believe that that's the answer to the Bach. You see, there are certain parts of life that are far more potent, far more energy-giving than others. There are certain activities that a human does that are far more powerful than others. The holiest thing that a human being can do on this planet is the avoda in the base of Migdash. And if you want to understand it from a spiritual perspective, that is the nuclear furnace that is giving off Kedusha for the existence of the universe. That is the spiritual epicenter. From that point emanates all Kedusha. We may not see it that way. It looks like a house. It looks like a physical building. And the coin brings a carbon. It doesn't bring a carbon. But if you put on your Geiger count of spirituality, if you're able to strip away the physicality and see it on the spiritual level, you'd see vibrancy, reactiveness. You'd see the nuclear furnace of the universe and a very small little error in that furnace can cause dramatic, dramatic results, a meltdown. And I think a very apt muscle is Chernobyl because the error that actually caused the nuclear meltdown was not a huge one. A very small mistake and an entire 19-mile radius becomes uninhabited because you're dealing with very powerful forces. What the Bach is telling us is, number one, if you would like to understand why Hashem made a decree against the base of Migdash, it was because the Avodah was no longer effective. You see, when you serve Hashem in the base of Migdash without the enthusiasm, without the energy, if it's pedestrian, if it's old, if you just walk in there, but it's not with that zrizis, with that real vacas to Hashem, it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, it's worthless. And if it's worthless, the existence of the universe is in grave danger. Because if that is the fuel, if that's the nuclear furnace that gives off the call of spirituality to the world, then the entire world is in grave danger. If you'd like to understand why it is that the Yavonim made decrees against Judaism, it was because Judaism was in grave danger. Judaism is not a culture. Judaism is not a people. It's a very, very vibrant spiritual existence. And if the epicenter, if the furnace, that which provides all of the strength to the Jewish people is lacking, then the Jewish people can't exist. And what the Bach is telling us is the fact that the Kohanim were lacking in their avoda, the fact that they were not doing their avoda with the right energy means that the world was in jeopardy, the Jewish people was in jeopardy, and if you'd like to understand why there was Hellenism, but not Hellenism amongst the Yavanim, but Hellenism amongst the Jews, it's because we're one unit, one spiritual entity, and if the nuclear furnace is not functioning properly, then it's Achenvei, the entire body, is in very serious trouble, and the results that happened came from that, and I believe that that's exactly what the Bach is saying. If you want to understand on a very deep level what was actually happening, it had nothing to do with Antiochus's dreams of power. It had nothing to do with the Hellenist dreams of bringing the Greek culture into Judaism. It had to do with one thing. The spiritual energy of the Jewish people were lacking. The spiritual furnace was extinguished, and therefore the nation was in grave danger. The spiritual existence of the world was in grave danger. And I think this concept is very, very important.
And I think it's on two levels that it's very significant. On one level, I think it's rather simple. One level is for us to understand every once in a while what actually makes the world work. When you study history and you see something that's clearly out of the norm, when you see the box, say a line, that the avod of the koanim jeopardize the entire generation, you then have to look at your own generation and ask yourself the following question. Where is the base of Mikdash today? Where is our nuclear furnace today? And what's keeping the generation alive? And I don't think it requires an awful lot of depth of understanding, but it bears pointing out. The spiritual furnace, the nuclear furnace of our nation today, that which keeps the spirituality of the entire world in existence, are the Batimidrashim, are the yeshivas that are powerfully, powerfully fueling this world. And that, from a Hashkafic perspective, is very important to understand. When you pass a Lakewood, New Jersey, and you hear a kotor of 5,000 men learning, no one understands you're watching a nuclear reactor. You're watching power. You're watching energy that's infusing this world with existence, that's changing the cosmos. To you and I, it just looks like noise, a bunch of guys in white shirts just standing over a stender. But if you were to step back with your spiritual Geiger account and feel the energy, feel the spiritual power that emanates from it, you'd understand that that's the chiyas of the world, that's what keeps the world in existence. And just from a Hashkafic standpoint, it's an important concept to think about because it's obligatory upon all of us to make sure that the yeshivas exist, to do whatever we can in terms of support, in terms of whatever we can do, because the world needs it, we need it. And if you'd like to really do something for Kirov, and you'll know that my Masora, and I've mentioned it many times, is that Kirov is a tremendous chiv to save a Jewish life, to take someone who's way, way removed from Judaism. It's a tremendous, tremendous obligation about any Jew. But if you understand the way the world works, it could well be that the fellow learning in Lakewood, Yoman Valila, will have as much an effect on his fellow Jew in Utah as you going out there. Now, don't get me wrong. You have to go out there, and someone has to actually do the work. But you cannot do Kirov. You cannot bring a Jew back to an empty shell. You can't bring a Jew back to a spirituality that's devoid of content. And if the madrig, if the world's spirituality sinks and sinks, there's no such concept of bringing people back. When you see thousands and thousands of Bali in our generation, it's only for one reason. Because the spiritual level is rising. Because there's a tremendous awakening. But that awakening is something that has nothing to do with the techniques of the Machanchim, nothing to do with the techniques of Aish gateways or any of the fine programs as good as they are. It has to do with the fact that there's a spiritual receptiveness. It has to do with the fact that the Nisham of the Jew is hungry. And that has to do directly with the spiritual level. And if you watch nuclear furnaces giving off that spirituality, you understand that that greatly affects the entire world's spirituality and every Jew's Involvement. And in a global sense, this concept is very important to understand. But I think there's a much bigger point for us, and something much more Nogea. And that is, in our own lives, if in fact I understand that my neshama is at any moment either rising or falling, 
It will never be static. But not only is it not static, it's constantly moving, constantly changing. It's constantly either going up or going down. And every action that I do increases it or decreases it. The question I have to ask myself is, which way am I headed? And what is my furnace? What is my energy plant? And what am I doing about it? And I have to share with you something that I find very profound. If a Jew goes through the motions as a robot, he goes to the Dafayomi, goes to Davening, but he's on robotic. I believe that that Jew is not just sound asleep at the switch, that lack of zrizus, that lack of energy, that lack of zeal and enthusiasm is a very dangerous, dangerous situation. Because, you see, what that's indicative of is that the system isn't doing its job. You see, if my neshama is getting fueled with Torah, then my neshama is excited. If my neshama is dovik to Hashem, if davening is a process of experiencing Hashem, then my neshama glows, I get excited, I want to daven, I want to learn, I become a very different person. If my actions are mere externals, and I'm going through the motions, then what it's indicative of is that the system isn't working. But if the system isn't working, then I am in grave danger. Because if the system isn't working, then my neshama is slowly, slowly being starved, slowly, slowly being choked out. The body will conquer it, and I will end up on a very different sort of plane than I should have been. And there's a very interesting solution to that particular problem. And that solution is something that Sulasham says. And that is to get up and move. To change. To do something. To get up and move with energy. To get up and daven with enthusiasm. To get up and learn with a drive. And he says an amazing thing. He says when you do the same action that you've always done, but this time you do it with drive and enthusiasm, what happens is it changes you. And all of a sudden, that dominating that you actually focus on changes you. The next step is the next dominating becomes better, the next mitzvah becomes better, your neshama starts to glow, and you slowly, slowly start a forward progress until your entire avodah Hashem increases and you become a very different sort of person. On the other hand, if you don't take that step forward and you remain on robotic, you never get anywhere. And it's really oftentimes just an issue of saying, I can do one more thing, I'm going to do one more thing, I'm going to do it with energy, I'm going to do it with enthusiasm, with zeal, and it means sometimes just the same dominance, same words, same standing there, but I'm really going to think, I'm really going to pay attention, I'm really going to learn Basmada, I'm going to really act as if I'm into it, and when you act as if you're into it, it changes the inside, and changes the whole essence of who you are. What the Bach is telling us, I think, is a fundamental principle in the workings of the entire globe. And that is that the Kohanim, when the Srasha Bavoda, the Kohanim were somewhat lax. They didn't have that drive, they didn't have that enthusiasm. And what that meant was the Avoda was lacking. And the nature of the world is that the epicenter of the world is the base of Migdash. The energy, the spiritual strength is not emanating from that. The entire world is in jeopardy. And that's in fact why it is that Hashem decreed that basically there's no more Judaism. 
when the Yavonim came in and made their decrees, it was only because Hashem sent a shliach. Antiochus was not the one who said, no more Shabbos, no more Shodesh, no more Mila. That was but a pawn in the hand of Hashem. The message that Hashem was saying was that your service, your avodas Hashem is broke. It doesn't work. Because it's not done with energy. It's not done with enthusiasm. It's not done with the inner heart. Then it doesn't work. And if the epicenter, the spiritual furnace that furnishes the entire world with existence doesn't work, then the whole world can't work, can't exist. And I think that's the concept that we see from the rocks that fought for Yaakov's head. Why were they fighting? Because every particle of physicality can only exist with a spiritual counterpart, but every particle of physicality only exists for one purpose, and that is to serve man. If a human being reaches perfection, if a human being is the person who is serving Hashem, then the entire world wishes to serve him, and the entire world that serves him becomes elevated, becomes improved, becomes different. If the Groh sat on a chair, it was a different chair. You and I may not see it, but on a spiritual level, it was a different chair. And in the door of Noah, when the generation turned to Znus, when the entire generation turned to immoral behavior, it didn't just affect them, it affected the entire spiritual climate to the extent that animals who have a total nefesh of Bahami, their animal nature was changed it became a different animal nature. They began being misdomic. They began mating well outside the species because the world itself became corrupted. And the big point here is that the human is extremely reactive. The changes are very real. And the minor steps that a person does or doesn't do can have a dramatic difference. I want to close with an interesting thought. And it's a kind of thought that if I don't, if it weren't for the person who it is, it might lead to depression. But let me share with you some interesting statistics. The Vilna Gon, the Groh, had a Rebbe until he was six years of age. At six and a half years of age, he already had outgrown his Rebbe. And his father brought him to the base Medrash for Shalashudas. And in Vilna, in front of the Av Beisdin of Vilna, Rev Herschel, little Elio got up to say over the pilpul that his father had taught him. He got up and said this very complex, very deep sugya. He said it over perfectly, brilliantly. Everyone was wowed. And a few people who were sitting next to Reb Herschel, who was a tremendous go, and said, big deal. This bright kid, his father taught him the words, and he memorized them. Reb Herschel said, uh-uh, that's not what's going on. Give him an hour. Reb Herschel gave him a new sugya that little Elio had never seen before. An hour later, he came back, and he said a pilpul that was deeper, more complex, and showed his brilliance. By the age nine, the Groh had finished shots. At 11 years of age, Simchus Torah, when they start bringing out the Sifrei Torah, the Groh remembered, Oive, I made a neder, and I didn't fulfill it. What was his neder? His neder was that he would finish Zvachim and Menachos that year, but he didn't begin it. He sat down, ran out from the base of Medrash, sat down, began, began learning it. There was a certain tremendous Talmud Chochem who saw that the Groh ran out and followed because he knew that this 11-year-old was not a regular 11-year-old. Two hours later, 
saw that he was up to Daf Nun, 50 pages into Zvachim. And he knew that this kid may be bright, but that's ridiculous. So he said to him, two hours and you're already up to Daf Nun? Let me ask you a few questions. And this man was a bookie in Zvachim and Menachos, and he asked the Grah backwards and forwards in the first 50 block, perfect understanding Gemara Pshatosis. The man left the room, and he came back a little bit later, and the girl was halfway through Menachos. By Shachris, when he davened Shachris the next day, he had finished Zvachim and Menachos at the tender age of 11 in one night. Now, from the age 11, he began to sit down and really learn more seriously. Between 13 and 19, he learned Shas B'Iyan. From 19 to 25, he learned through all the Rishonim and Achronim. And his children say about him, after 25, his children say about him, for 50 years, he never once slept more than a half hour at a time, and never once slept more than two hours in a 24-hour period. His typical Seder was sometime during the evening to lie down for half an hour. After two or three of those rest periods, he would get up and then learn for eight hours straight till he would daven chakras. People would come from far and wide all over Europe to be in the base medrash of the Groh when he daven chakras because mila b'mila, each word was said with such fervor, with such beautiful nigun, they say that you could feel that he had a new level of understanding, a new level of dvekus with every word. People would be just mesmerized by his tefillah. He one time, not one time, it actually regularly would tell people that you have to know a mesechta by heart. You must know a mesechta by heart so you can learn it at any given time. There was a certain Tamachochem in Vilna who came to the Gra after taking the Gra's words very seriously and he had mastered Masechta Sukkos by heart. He had learned it many times before. But after hearing this enough time from the Gra, he made up his decision. He's going to do it. And he sat down at the Cholomoyed meal on the Gra and he said, Rebbe, I do what you said to me. I learned Balpeh Masechta Sukkah. So the Gra said, okay, would you like me to ask a few questions on it? The man said, sure. No, Balpeh, why not? And the girl began asking, how many machlokuses are there between Rameh and Rabbi Yossi? How many between Rava and Rabbi Huda? How many between Abai and Rava? How many between Rapap and Rav Huna? The man was dumbstruck, because no one really knows that. And then the girl began to speak. This is in front of a large crowd of people. And he began to list the machlokus tanoim, how many machlokas tanoim there are in Masechta Sukkah, how many amaroim are mentioned, how many times it passing like this one, how many sugyas, how many shitas, how many dinim are brought from the Tosefta, how many from the Yerushalmi, how many examples of kosher sukkahs, how many examples of puzzle sukkahs. His children said of him that he knew kol kula with such clarity that he could tell you word by word how many words, how many letters in every Masechta, in every part of Shas. Now, why do I say that? Because if it were anyone but the Groh, this would be depressing. Because there ain't no way, there ain't no way that if I spend from now till my last breath on this planet learning with total asmara, that I'll be one hundredth, not a thousandth of the Groh. But it's not depressing because I was not created to be the Groh. And the reason I mention this is because it's very important every once in a while to open your eyes and see a man aglow 
see a burning coal, see a human being who's a vibrant, radiant, existing, glowing person, and then ask yourself, am I what I can be? I'm not the grower, I'm not expected to be the grower, but is my dominating what my dominant could be? Is my learning what my learning should be? Am I that type of person who's a glow, whose neshama is a lit, who's really, really accomplishing? And the amazing point is that a single decision can often make that difference. And that decision is, I will work on this item, this thing called having energy, enthusiasm. I'm going to work on dominating. I'm going to work on learning. I'm going to work on being a passionate Jew. I'm going to work on being a Dovik, being one who clings to Hashem. But that decision, when carried out with energy, with enthusiasm, with focus, I'm not going to sit back, be lackadaisical. I'm not going to just be a laid-back Jew, but I'm going to be alive. I'm going to be vibrant. I'm going to be focused. It makes such a difference in your entire Vodas Hashem. It makes a difference between stagnation and growth. And what the Bach is telling us is that's exactly why the base of Migdash was slated to be destroyed. Not because they didn't do the Avodah, they did every single step of the Avodah. The Shechita, Kabbal Zadam, Zrika, Balicha, everything was done perfectly. The physical actions weren't lacking, it was the heart that was lacking. And if you're going through the motions, but you're not there, it doesn't work. And the base of Migdash was slated to be destroyed, the entire Jewish nation was slated to be destroyed, the world was slated to be destroyed because the furnace wasn't operating it grew cold. And if your own Avodah Hashem is lacking energy, enthusiasm, it's lacking vacas, then it's cold, it doesn't feed your neshama, it doesn't feed your soul, and you're in jeopardy. And the way to change it is to make a decision, to move. Sometimes it could be a little decision. I'm going to do Shnayim Mikra, Nechatargum like a mensch. I'm going to learn another half hour. I'm going to daven with more kavana. One little step, which leads to another step, which leads to another step, can change a person's existence. Hashem grant us wisdom, understanding, put this into practice. You've been listening to The Shmooze, presented by Teferis B'nai Torah. For more information on The Shmooze, please visit us at www.theshmooze.com where you can download all the schmoozing free of charge, as well as view source sheets and address questions or comments on this or any other schmooze. The schmooze is completely funded by private donations. We need your help to continue our work. All donations are tax-deductible and count as miser. Please help us help others by calling 866-613-TORAH. That's 866-613-TORAH. Or you can make your donation right on the web at www.theschmooze.com.